Welcome to the Burnett Breakdown, where I, Hunter Burnett, keep up with the news so that you don't have to. This week we'll be talking about inflation, mandatory arbitration, and international news, Russia yet again. This week was the exact opposite of last week in that there is a ton of domestic news to get to, starting yet again with inflation. So on Thursday, the Labor Department said that the Consumer Price Index in January reached its highest level since February 1982. Uh, Inflation accelerated to a 7.5% annual rate above December's 7% annual rate of inflation. Also, according to one economic analysis, the average U.S. household is spending an additional $276 a month because of inflation. Now, because of inflation, the Fed could very well raise interest rates by half a percentage point at its March policy meeting. The question facing Fed officials ahead of their policy meeting next month is no longer whether they will raise interest rates, but rather by how much. They had the option of either a half percentage point increase or the more standard quarter percentage point move. The Fed hasn't raised rates by half a percentage point since 2000. And so we will see in March what they decide to do. Again, my thoughts remain the same about inflation, that inflation is largely going to be solved through the supply chain issues being resolved. The government can do little to nothing to help that. Now, the the Fed can tamp down on demand, and that is what they're going to try and do by raising rates. They're going to try and limit the amount of uh, demand that is uh, present in the economy the demand largely, or at least uh, helped along and spurred along by the various spending bills that have been spent uh, and have been passed in Congress. But outside of tamping down on demand, it's really uh, inflation's really going to be resolved by those supply chain issues. And so we'll keep an eye out on those. Uh, certainly, inflation is going to be very important for the midterms. If inflation continues to increase at the rate that it is increasing, then Democrats are going to be in trouble. In November, inflation is a very pressing issue issue for Americans. They deeply care about it. They see it every day. They see the impact of it every single day, and it impacts every single aspect of their finances. And people care a lot about their finances. And so you cannot hide inflation. You cannot spin inflation. If it continues at this rate, then the Democrats are going to be in real deep trouble come November. And so this is definitely worth keeping an eye on. Continuing on in national news, the uh, the House and Senate this week passed a bipartisan bill, a really interesting one, that would bar mandatory arbitration in cases of sexual assault and harassment. So what happens is that companies usually place mandatory arbitration clauses in contracts that block consumers and employees from raising claims in court. Instead, they have to direct the the claims of a sexual assault and harassment to private arbiters whose proceedings are often con- uh, confidential. And so these clauses are usually in the fine print of contracts, and it, it the companies claim that it promotes better and more efficient handling of compliance. However, consumer advocates say that the private arbitration system is skewed toward business and impedes public accountability. So in other words, because these uh, hearings and these arbitration hearings are usually not public, that means that the company, if there's rampant sexual harassment in that company's culture, then it, it will not become public because it will be privately accounted for. And so the the House and the Senate passed this bill to basically reject these clauses. Now, 
This is interesting because usually uh, contract law is pretty straightforward. Two parties agree to something, and because they both agree, sorry, you may feel like you're getting screwed out of something, but you agreed that this is the way you're going to go about doing this. And so what what Congress is doing here is basically saying that all of those contracts that have been signed that include these clauses are null and void. Not the whole contract, but those specific clauses. They're, they're null and void for sexual harassment in particular. Okay, so you can see that this is definitely an infringement on uh, private contract rights. But with that said, and typically I'd be pretty against that, but I'm actually kind of in favor of something like this. I think that this is uh, maybe a good thing for government to step in on because it does make sense that businesses just be in, in the mind of a business they're not they're going to they would rather go to this arbitration process and so it's in their self-interest to go through this arbitration process and because it's in their self-interest they're going to go that route but that does limit the public accountability that these companies can have and so I'm I think there is a role for government here to step in and say that this this is an unacceptable this clause that prevents sexual harassment uh, from going into a courtroom and rather having to go through a public arbitration hearing is unacceptable and we're not going to stand for that now the reason why uh, courts ba- they basically have to defer to these uh, these contracts because in, in uh, 1925 Calvin Coolidge signed the Federal Arbitration Act which requires courts to 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 defer when private parties agree in advance to resolve disputes through private arbitration rather than through the justice system. So in other words, that the, the Congress in 1925 passed this act that said that co- the courts cannot step in when there has been a, uh, a signed agreement that two parties sign in advance to resolve disputes in this private arbitration. And so that's what's happening is these contracts, these two, the consumers or employees and businesses are signing these contracts in advance. So when they raise issues, uh, the courts are, because of this law, having, they have to, uh, they have to uh, defer to the uh, courts, or sorry, to the private party uh, arbitration. Now, the U.S. Chamber of Commons, Commerce, which is usually seen as business, the business-friendly segment of uh, the kind of lobbying groups, they expressed concerns about the bill, saying that it is overly broad. They did support another Senate bill of, in the same vein that was sponsored by Joni Ernst of Iowa. That bill from Ernst, sponsored by Ernst, created 11 criteria that companies need to meet for cases to go to arbitration, including survivors' right to counsel and to speak publicly about their case. So in other words, this bill that Ernst uh, sponsored kind of made it more specific the circumstances that that companies uh, had to meet before they could take a case uh, for sexual harassment or assault private. And so that was more specified, so the uh, the U.S. Co- uh, Chamber of Commerce did support that bill, and I can see why, because it leaves less discretion for the government. However, Ernst did end up supporting the Senate's past version of this of uh, the bill, not the one that she proposed, but rather the one that was end- ended up being passed by both the Senate and the House, uh, As but she uh, supported it after the sponsors of the bill agreed to clarify on the Senate floor that the legislation should be narrowly interpreted and not effectively eliminate arbitration in employment-related cases. And so this is a really interesting law. I, th- I, 
I, I'm still hesitant because I always assume that government is going to be able to find a way to uh, use this in wrong ways or abuse this power, but this is a cr- incredibly good step in terms of making sure that companies are held accountable for any sexual har- harassment or assault that they uh that they promote, that they encourage, that they don't address, the culture that they create, etc. And so I think this is a an interesting bill, probably a good bill, but I do want to wait and see uh, it, how the government uses and whether they are can abuse uh, the power or not. Continuing in national news, the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission regulators, were rather busy proposing new requirements for private investment funds. So in a Wednesday morning meeting, the SEC passed a proposal that would require private fund managers to do all sorts of things. So we talked about this a few weeks ago on the podcast where they were throwing around the idea of regulating the private loan or private investment uh, industry. So large private uh, hedge funds and private uh, investment banking, things of that nature. And so they did indeed pass a proposal that would require private fund managers to provide their investors with quarterly statements detailing fund performance, fees and expenses, as well as manager compensation and undergo annual audits in an effort by the SEC to place a check on asset valuation estimates often used to calculate managers' fees. So the SEC did uh, pass this regulation. It will not go into effect quite yet. The agency has to seek public comments for at least two months before issuing a final rule that is due to the the APA or the administration, something, something of another, that that determines regulations. Uh, I will say I already talked about how much I don't like this idea. And... After reading the comments from SEC Chairman Gary Gensler, I guess is how you say that, I don't like it even more. Uh, he said, quote, It's worth asking whether we can promote more efficiency, competition, and transparency in this field. No. Okay, the answer is no. You cannot promote more efficiency, competition, and transparency. You can't. Okay, There's nothing about these regulations that will make this field or this industry more efficient. That's just absurd to even think about. And not only that, but they would it would continue and the bad news would continue in this field because private funds would be prohibited from certain practices that motivate asset managers to put their interests ahead of their clients or be, quote, contrary to the public interest, the SEC said in a fact sheet. Okay, so who gets to define whether a private fund has certain practices that are, quote, contrary to the public interest? Clearly, the SEC will get to determine that. So now we're handing over a ton of power to the SEC regulators, not to regulate public companies, but to regulate private funds and whether they are abiding by public interest. So Will climate change, is that against, is, is investing in something like an oil or gas company against, quote, the private, uh, the public interest because it is uh, against this uh, push for more sustainable energy? So that is, that is so much power that is now going to be handed over to the SEC to just dictate what private funds can and cannot do with their money, who they can and cannot loan out money to. And and this going back to this idea of, of making it more efficient, you, these private funds are now going to have to hire people to make these reports, to get all of this together, to gather this data and to organize it. 
That is inefficient. That is resources going to meet regulation instead of resources going to invest in companies that can improve the economy and can make uh, all of our lives better. So now that those resources are going to be invested into nonsense to just to meet these regulations instead of being productive. So this is an absurd regulation. I, I hate it so much. I hate the reasoning behind it. It is essentially they these private fund funds have a lot of money. They do a lot of business and companies really like them. And we feel a little sketchy about that. Therefore, we need to regulate. And I hate the fact that the government has to involve themselves in something like this simply to quote protect investors as if investors are little children who need the government to come alongside of them and tell them what are good and bad investments okay these are sophisticated investors okay they already regulate who can and cannot be involved in this industry so they are according to the regulation you have to be a sophisticated investor so you have sophisticated investors and you still think the government the government still thinks they know better that is absurd and i hate this with so much of my heart now on to some quick hits. So on Monday, the U.S. said that it had agreed to lift import tariffs on Japanese steel that were imposed by the Trump administration. So the Trump administration put in these uh, steel tariffs in t- uh, 2018 because they believed that there was an oversupply of basic metals that posed a national security threat. And what this agreement does is it allows Japan to export to the United States 1.25 million metric tons of steel to the U.S. duty-free. So this is a this level was determined because it was similar to its uh, exports in 2018 and 19 to the U.S. So the uh, tariffs, I, I this was one of my biggest pet peeves with the Trump administration was imposing tariffs. I don't like tariffs. I think free trade leads to the greatest economic productivity and is better for the country as a whole. And so I love that they are lifting some of these import tariffs. However, I do not see the reason for maintaining the cap. Okay, so it's a step in the right direction, but I would really love if they got rid of the cap so that there was just complete free trade with the United or sorry with uh, with Japan. And that is something that Japan also wants because a Japanese spokesman for the Japanese embassy in Washington said that Japan will continue to seek the complete removal of the steel and aluminum tariffs. And I hope that they can achieve that with the United States. Also on Monday, the uh, some Democratic-led states decided to lift their mask mandates for schools and other indoor areas in the coming weeks. So Connecticut and New Jersey said school districts would be able to determine their own masking policies starting February 28th and March 7th, respectively. California's indoor mask mandates will expire on February 15th. Uh, said Gavin Newsom's office, and then, but the mandate will stay in place for now in schools. So this, I, I'm I'm glad they're the, these Democratic-led states are finally joining the rest of the country. I live in Georgia. We haven't had mass mandates in forever, if we ever had any. So I'm I, look, it's newsworthy, but at the end of the day, I say welcome to the rest of the country and welcome to living your lives again. Now on to some international news, and if this sounds a little discombobulated and confused, that's because it is. Because in the middle of the recording, uh, the uh, some reports have come out that have changed the situation between Russia and Ukraine. So if you remember, we've talked about this on the podcast plenty of times before, but Russia and Ukraine, Russia has uh, amassed over 120,000 Russian troops on its border with Ukraine, and U.S. intelligence reports have continuously said that a threat of invasion is imminent. That not only that, that that this wasn't an exercise and this wasn't a uh, a bluff, but that uh, there was a very real chance that an invasion, a Russian invasion into Ukraine, could happen. And so, since this recording started, 
uh, on Friday. The U.S. Uh, believes, according to intelligence reports, and again, these reports, I have no idea to know whether they are accurate or not. They, they, are, they have been reported by trustworthy people, but I have no idea. I, I don't have the sources, and so take this all with a grain of salt, but these are seem to be reliable enough sources. And so on Friday, the United States believes... And intelligence believes that Russian President Vladimir Putin has decided to invade Ukraine and has communicated that decision to the Russian military. The U.S. expects the invasion to begin next week. Um, now, I did read another report that the target date is Wednesday, so there was uh, some thinking that maybe Russia would wait to invade but until after the uh, Olympics were over, over, but that it looks like uh, the target date is supposedly Wednesday, and according to Reuters, the uh, Russian military has amassed enough troops on the border of Ukraine to do a full-scale invasion. So what does this mean for the United States if this were to happen? Okay, and if Wednesday really is the target date, then next week I should be able to update you on that. But what does this mean for the United States if this does happen? Directly not much. By that I mean that the United States and the Biden administration has already ruled out sending U.S. troops to help defend Ukraine. However, on Friday, he did approve, or maybe it was Thursday, he did approve um, that they're to send troops to Poland to help the evacuation of both Americans and possibly Ukrainians to Poland. So that will happen, but you, those troops were not authorized to go into Ukraine. So there will be no American soldiers sent to Ukraine to defend Ukraine. However, the United States has already been sending weapons and would continue to send weapons to Ukraine. And in fact, would probably basically open up the war chest outside of nuclear weapons and say, here, have whatever you need to fight Russia. So in, in terms of direct military action for the United States, this doesn't mean much. Now, this does mean a lot to international relationships. So what this would do is this would create a huge uh, panic, a huge um, crisis in terms of displacing millions of Ukraines. So to read from one of the uh, reports, uh, a conflict of this sort would displace millions of Ukrainians, creating a humanitarian c catastrophe in Europe and giving way to a refugee crisis along its western borders with NATO-aligned states. Such a crisis could uh, would destabilize the uh, European Union and pit members of the Atlantic Alliance against one another. Okay, so we see that this situation could go south very quickly. Uh, obviously, it could go south for the Ukrainians and would go south for the Ukrainians, but it could also go south with the uh, the effects of that in Europe. And so uh, there's I've, I've talked about the tensions between NATO and how Putin has already exposed those tensions, and those tensions will only get exacerbated by uh, this uh, invasion if this invasion were really to happen. And that is not to mention, again, the economic impact of the Ukrainian economy tanking if Russia takes over or invades, and the uh, refugee uh, crisis uh, if uh, of Ukrainians exiting and leaving Ukraine towards Russia. What does NATO do about that? So there is so much to think about, uh, and not NATO, but the European Union. What does the European Union decide to do about that? So there's so much 
that could happen if this these reports are true. And again, I, I have no way of knowing exactly if they are true, but it is worth talking about because if this is true, then this has enormous impacts and a ripple effect throughout the international order. Again, not directly with the United States, but this does have uh, really significant ramifications in terms of NATO and uh, international relationships. So uh, we'll see what happens. The next week should be really interesting and not just interesting, but really important in terms of the lives of Ukrainians. And and, and one other thing to mention, uh, and I thought this way about Afghanistan as well. The United States should have an open door policy for anybody from Ukraine from Afghanistan, any refugees that want to come to the United States to get away from from a totalitarian regime. If you, especially in Afghanistan, but if you worked with the United States, if you have a relationship with the United States, and the United States is able to vet you, okay, so that's important, so you do need to be able to be vetted enough to know that you're not a terrorist threat or anything like that. So if the United States, if you have a relationship with them and you are, and you have the, the United States has the capacity to vet you, then we should have an open door policy. We should allow anyone who wants to flee from these regimes to come to the United States and be good, productive citizens. Okay, we already have a labor, uh, a tight labor market in the United States. What would help that is an influx of refugees and immigrants from these countries that are escaping totalitarian regimes. And here's the thing is largely these kinds of immigrants become the best type of American, meaning they they value the, uh, the, the democratic institutions of America. They value the uh, culture of America. They value the uh, ideas of America, the freedom of America. They value all of these things because they know the opposite and they have experienced the opposite and they are fleeing from the opposite. So these types of immigrants are the types of immigrants that we need to bring into this country. So I am all for, and we should be screaming to the whole world as an example to the whole world that we that if you are fleeing a totalitarian regime in Ukraine from Ukraine from the Taliban in Afghanistan then come to the United States where there will be freedom there'll be prosperity and we can't wait to have you and I wish the United States and I wish the Republican Party would have that mindset because if they had that mindset then it would be better for everyone it would be better economically and it would be better for the country as a whole to welcome these people in Quickly, in other international news, since that kind of stole the spotlight a little bit, but there's a Canadian trucker protest. So a bunch of truck drivers have, have gone to the city of uh, Ottawa, uh, the capital city of Canada, to protest a vaccine mandate. They basically have clogged the streets with their trucks. They've been bl- blasting their horns. They're refusing to move. This has huge uh, economic ramifications in Canada with the U.S. as well, as the economy has basically had to shut down because people cannot get uh, to their businesses because the streets are blocked. Uh, this has also uh, ramifications for uh, Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, as he has been largely to blame for this. Not just, I'm not just saying that, but actually, like polls have indicated that Canadians largely blame him for this. So, this is an important thing to pay attention to. This has uh, economic ramifications for the United States as we trade a lot with Canada. And if they can't trade with us, then that impacts our economy as well. Also, uh, the Biden administration uh, is preparing to unveil its first broad economic strategy for the Asia-Pacific region. So there is a new Indo-Pacific economic framework that is in the works. This is essentially a economic relationship and alliance and partnership with some Southeast Asia countries. So in the uh, in 2017, Donald Trump left the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP. I disagreed with this decision. I think this was a bad decision because I'm all for building economic bridges with other countries. Uh, so this was... Uh, 
when they left, when the United States left this agreement that left a hole, an economic hole in Southeast Asia, which meant a lot of Southeast Asian countries kind of started to tend or look to China to fill that economic gap. And so rebuilding these relationships in this uh, region of the world is going to be good for the United States economy. It's going to be good for the Southeast and Asian uh, countries' economies, and it's going to kind of help par back China's influence in this region. There isn't specifics about the details. Um, he, President Biden isn't expected to offer tariff cuts or anything like that, according to reports, um, largely because the tariff cuts would uh, are opposed by U.S. labor groups. So I wish Biden would and would give all sorts of tariff cuts. I, I wish that we would have free trade with Southeast Asia. That doesn't look like what, that's what this deal is going to be, but I'll be interested to see what the details are and it's something to keep an eye out for. And then finally, in international news, Israel and the United Arab Emirates uh, have accelerated their security and intelligence cooperation efforts through a defense deal. So uh, essentially in Yemen, there's a civil war going on. There's these Houthis, which are rebels, and they have sp- they have attacked uh, with drones, not with drones, but uh, rockets. Um, in They have shot rockets into the capital city of the UAE, and so— uh, and these uh, Houthis in Yemen are actually Tehran-backed, so they're backed by uh, Iran. And so these rebels have been not just fighting Yemen, but have been fighting the UAE as well. And this uh, agreement, this defense deal between the UAE and Israel could be really big because they just recently, a year ago, established diplomatic ties in the Abraham uh, Accords that uh, during the— uh, President uh, Trump administration, and so these countries continuing to increase their alliance. This not alliance, but this a relationship is a really important and stabilizing factor of the United of the Middle East, and it shows the uh, the real serious uh, danger and threat that these Middle Eastern countries see in Iran, because uh, this is largely to prevent uh, Iran from doing anything too crazy. And now on to the breakdown of the breakdown, where I talk about my newsletter, The Burnett Breakdown, which you can subscribe to and read on Substack. And this week I talked about the banning of the book Mouse. This book is a graphic novel um, that is all about the Holocaust, and it uh, was banned, or not banned, but it was removed from from the curriculum of a, a Tennessee school board. And so the uh, I, I didn't talk about why, the, the banning as much as I talked about why did they feel the need to remove it from the curriculum. And they their stated their statement that they came out with for why is quote because of its unnecessary use of profanity and nudity and its depiction of violence and suicide. Okay, so in other words, uh, they felt like it was inappropriate for eighth graders because that's the, what the curriculum it was originally in. It was in the curriculum for eighth graders. So why did the school board feel the need to remove this from the curriculum? It's because they deemed it inappropriate. Now, the reason why this caught my attention is because I thought about whether I would teach this to my middle school students, and honestly, I have to say that I don't think I would because I'd also think it was inappropriate. And it's not so much that I think it would be inappropriate for the eighth graders themselves, so I actually do think it would be, or the middle schoolers themselves, because I actually do think it would be, but also because the parents would think it was inappropriate, and then I would get a lot of parent emails. Now, the reason why I say this, and I'm not, and I say this in a newsletter, but I don't I'm not judging whether it should be appropriate or not. Okay, I don't. I actually think this is a great way to teach the Holocaust, um, and that it should be appropriate because we should be teaching our our students about the real, realistic, real gruesome nature of the Holocaust because that's how it really was, and we shouldn't sugarcoat it, and we shouldn't put roses and daffodils all over it, and so. 
I think this should be appropriate, but I don't think it is appropriate. So in other words, I'm offering an explanation for why someone would think this is inappropriate, not whether it should or should not be inappropriate. And the reason that I think it is inappropriate is because what we have done, and uh, uh, Calling of the American Mind and uh, iGen are two studies on Gen Z, is for Gen Z, what we have done is we have basically prevented them from growing up because we have decided to protect them at all costs. We emphasize safety over everything. So because we em emphasize safety, we do not th let them experience the hard things or the difficult things in life or things in life that make them uncomfortable. So we have weakened them and we have made them so that they don't want to grow up. So the reason I say it is inappropriate to teach uh, the, the mouse book is because these students and the, the, that are all part of Gen Z aren't mature enough. They aren't, uh, they have been too sheltered. They have been uh, coddled and they have been kept too safe so that any uh, attempt to, or any presentation of material that would uh, kind of shock them or make them uncomfortable like the mouse book would, uh, would actually be, uh, would, would create anxiety in them. Okay, because they haven't been equipped to actually deal with it. And so what I, what I think is that, and you see this all across the country, these quote-unquote banning of books and ideas like, uh, uh, like critical race theory. It's like it's not, we, are in, we are making children want to stay children forever rather than preparing them for adulthood. And that means preparing them for things that are going to make them uncomfortable, that are going to be hard, that are going to be tough. We refuse to challenge them. And so because of that, they are unprepared to face something like the Holocaust and learn about it in its totality and in, in, in its reality. And so this is a problem, and we're not going to be able to stop this uh, continuing process and this continuing trend of trying to ban books and ideas until we get to the root cause, which is that we need children to grow up and and here's the important part we need parents to let them so it's not on the children because largely these children don't don't grow up because their parents don't let them their parents have protected them have kept them safe have refused to challenge them and so they get out in the real world and instead of experiencing the real world they rather would just stay under their parents wings and not never leave the nest and that is a problem and that is going to continue the demand to ban ideas and books that make students uncomfortable because they actually cannot handle it because it's not a appropriate for them because they haven't been equipped for it to be uh, to be studied or be thought about. And with that, that is the end of the Burnett Breakdown podcast this week. Please like, subscribe, share, rate, do whatever you can to make this podcast pop off. And I hope that you will return next week.